Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes, and this is videocast episode 83, podcast episode 73 for the week ending May 21st, 2021. Great to be with you. As always, we're going to start with some media spots, cover some key points. We've got a lot of Ask Me Anything questions this week. We're going to get to at the top of the episode, and then we're going to go through quite a few sectors quite a few notes so grab a pen and paper if you can if you can't just listen we're glad you tuned in and uh hope you enjoy but action-packed this week so stay tuned here we go uh first off want to thank liz clayman and ellie terrett for having me on the fox business the clayman countdown on tuesday we were talking about the 13f large hedge fund filings and liz asked about uh michael burry's short on tesla uh, warren buffett and kathy wood's portfolios and who made the best trades for Q1. Um, now, with Michael Burry, there were headlines out that he shorted a half a billion dollars of Tesla. That's uh, not accurate. That's the notional value of the options, as I said in the segment, which you can find at hedgefundtips.com. Uh, he may have a million, a few million dollars of premium at most, a few tens of millions of dollars of premiums, but it's uh, that's his maximum risk. The notional value, if Tesla went to zero, would be 530. 34 million uh but um you know he's a he's a clever contrarian he got the housing crash right in uh 07 09 he's got some things wrong he's he's right more often than he's wrong um so definitely worth paying attention to however this was a q1 filing and if you if you recall tesla dropped from like 900 to 600 so he may have taken a ton of profits probably five or seven x on the options already maybe he's holding it till death like uh chanos you know tries to hold things till zero um i think take a win i wouldn't bet against uh elon musk long term irrespective of valuation the guy's like a cat he's got nine lives and he is the thomas edison of our day i have actually zero positions in tesla either way never have but uh a fan of the guy and uh his thought process and uh some of the things that he's done uh if you want to argue about valuation and everything else that's you know i'll leave that to uh to uh, others, but th this doesn't make uh, Burry a complete contrarian because he had 330 million in notional value longs in Google and Facebook, uh, in options again probably a few million to maybe a couple tens of millions of uh, option premium, and uh, and both those trades worked in Q1 Tesla short and Facebook and Google long. Uh, so that's that. Whether he took profits is unknown. Now, Buffett. Everyone's looking at Buffett Berkshire's uh, filings. You, it, it has zero uh, correlation to Warren Buffett at this stage of the game. Uh, this is a commentary on Todd and Ted. Why do we know that? They cut their Chevron stake in half. Warren Buffett said on, at the annual meeting he'd be perfectly happy owning the entire company because uh, we're going to need a tremendous amount of fossil fuel through the renewable transition period. They bought Aon, which is an insurance broker that's merging with Willis uh, Towers Watson. They're going to be bigger than Marsh and McLennan. That's a play on inflation and pricing power in the inflation in the uh, insurance sector. Pricing had been soft. Also, the rising rate environment. So uh, I, I kind of like it. It's up huge. But uh, not impressed by anything in that filing uh, for this quarter. And then Kathy Wood. Interesting thing about Kathy Wood, who's basically bullish on anything uh, and everything uh, that's tech-related. Uh, she cut her Apple position to zero, which I tend to agree with. 
Um, I, obviously, I love Apple long term. Uh, I think that it, it, it had huge margin expansion last year into perfect earnings in Q1, uh, January 26th, and it's never recovered since. It's been trading sideways. Today, uh, Tim Cook testified uh, against in the U.S. lawsuit about the 30% um, extraction fee in the App Store. And Barry Diller was on CNBC uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin did a nice interview this morning where Barry Diller said that he, he felt it was it was basically criminal. I mean, you know, credit cards uh, charge a 2% toll charge. Why is Apple entitled to a 30% toll charge? They add ac- absolutely zero value to the app developers who do all the work um, other than that they have the platform and they built the platform is the other side of the argument. But it'll be interesting to see. I mean, Apple's trading probably like they're going to get a favorable outcome. Otherwise, it would be down a lot further uh, or it's just simply unknown because the counterpoint of them losing some of that 30 percent would be so devastating that maybe institutions can't even fathom that. But, um, you know, keep our eye on that one. And then they've got the EU lawsuit with Spotify, which is the same story. So, you know. Any impairment to that, obviously, it's not going to zero. Does it go to 2%? Probably not. Does it go to 15%? I don't know. 20%? You know, either way, the entire growth story, they have zero major growth catalysts. Uh, uh, X, the services moving forward. Yes, the 5G changeover, but a lot of that's baked in with the multiple expansion from last year. So, um so that's that's kind of interesting that she shaved that. She bought Twitter, Palantir, Coinbase, and DraftKings. Um, a lot of high multiple stocks are down. You know, in in her book, are down thirty to sixty percent. I think they some of them start to get interesting, and we'll talk about that today. But uh, I actually threw out an outlier. I said, look, those three are fine. What I'm interested in, Liz, I think what will prove to be the trade of the year is what Soros did. And we just actually got his filings this week. I've been talking about the same trade for the last week and a half. He did it. Uh, and uh, and uh, he did it in Q1. So it's, he has a little short-term pain. But I think it's going to prove to be the trade of the year. Uh, he swooped in to buy Chinese stocks and also a couple of U.S. media stocks, Discovery and Viacom, as far as I know, uh, while uh, Bill Huang and his uh, Archegos fund was collapsing. And uh, that's my kind of trade. I love going in where there's distress and where everyone's puking out. And uh, and Soros apparently had the exact same idea. So I think as we look out six to nine months, that's going to be phenomenal. A number of the Ask Me Anything questions deal with that. So we'll 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 uh, uh, dig a little deeper on that as we move forward in this podcast. So uh, secondly, want to thank. Uh, so again, thank you to Ellie Terrett and to Liz Clayman for having me on Tuesday. Want to thank Giovanni Prati, who had me on CNN. Um, and in this clip. They're talking about um, a Robinhood-type platform that's opening up in the Middle East. And I had a couple quotes in here. The main thing was, what are the biggest mistakes new investors make? And, you know, number one is they try to make too much money too quickly. That's And they blow they blow up their accounts. That, that just happens all the time. Um, they think they're going to get rich overnight without knowing anything. It's like going in to do heart surgery without 10 years of schooling and residency and all of that stuff. You're not going to know what you're doing in this business for at least five years. Uh, and the minute you think you beat the system and you're smarter, uh, you'll you'll blow up your first account so uh but that's not such a bad thing it's not like oh 
you're not smart because you did that. It's just normal human nature and it's part of the process. The, the difference between the people who go on to be uh, successful and um, uh, well-regarded and do extremely well in this business are the ones that can make it through that process, live to see another day, have enough risk management until they know what they're doing, until they can understand and analyze a business and, and understand the markets and have been through enough cycles where it's um, it's like a seasoned surgeon after 20 years and education and seeing all the different scenarios and permutations that you start to make big money. However, that shouldn't deter people from entering the game because it's the greatest game in the world. It's just take it slow, paper trade, use very small size, use risk management in the beginning and uh, and learn as much as you possibly can. Um, and that was kind of my suggestion there. I had a bunch of others that didn't make it into the clip. Obviously, Read Intelligent Investor by Ben Graham. That's probably the most important book. That's Buffett's recommendation where you understand the mania of the market. Um, and how you can you know wait and swing swing for fat pitches when the market serves uh, when the market starts starts acting manic, and um, and that was that. So thank you again to Giovanni Prati over at CNN. Uh, want to thank Saleha uh, Riaz for having me in her Yahoo Finance article on the 18th. So that was uh, three days ago. And let's see. Ah. So this is very interesting. Um, crude started trading down, I believe. Let's see. Okay, no, okay. So she was asking me about oil because I guess oil was up on that day, and I and I was more interested. You know, people are getting. Um, you know, there were uh, 1.85 million TSA screenings that day. Driving season's right around the corner. This is a period of seasonal strength. And, but but I wanted to point out, with everyone now getting excited about oil when we were pounding the table last year and no one wanted it, the risks are uh, an Iran deal gets done, the U.S. removes the sanction and puts a meaningful amount of supply back online in the short term. OPEC's held steady in its commitment to control su supply so far, uh, and the full commercial aviation recovery in the second half of 2021 should keep a decent bid under the market even if we see new supply come uh, from Iran come online. But no one's really paying attention to this. And this this administration has been itching to do a deal with Iran. I think that's probably going to get done sooner than later and surprise the market a little bit. So um, the other thing that leads me to believe that that will be the case is uh, someone was in the market this week buying enormous amounts of uh, call premium expecting Brent to be over $100 by the end of the year, which tells me that all this late excited money is going to get the stuffing pounded out of it over the next few months at some point, probably a 10 or 20% pullback and just shake all the weak people that have reluctantly got into energy and energy stocks, pound them out, and then take off higher over the next three to five years. So just, you know, um, I love energy, but I don't. I could care less if my, if my positions move against me that are up 100, 150 percent. If they move 20 or 30 percent against me, I could care less. Um, I'm diamond hands, as they say. Uh, but the new money who just bought, who's been you know fighting the trend for six months and saying that uh, you know we're all going to live on you know soy burgers and um, you know electric flying vehicles like the Jetsons are early in their assessment. So um, 
we're going to need a tremendous amount of fuel, fossil fuels, to get to, for the mining, obviously, uh, to get us from um, uh, here to the renewable transition. It's a good thing that the transition's happening because the population's still growing outside the developed world, and we need as much fuel as we can get from any possible source. <clears throat> Moving along. Uh, thanks to uh, Gertrude Chavez-Dreyfus, Sujata Rayo, and Tommy Wilkes for including me there in their article on Reuters. Uh, so this was the first crypto crash earlier this week. I said there's a lot of leverage embedded on, in, into crypto stocks, so there's going to be a spillover effect into equity markets in the short term. And there's also... Uh, uh, inflation fears as the mar market thinks the Fed is behind the curve and may have to hike rates abruptly if prices keep rising. So um, so we'll talk a little bit about that. I mean, the Fed has been all over the place. The, the, the people weren't happy with the minutes on Wednesday, the Fed minutes, because they said uh, we have to start talking about talking about having a meeting to talk about a plan to possibly talk about tapering. And um, then you got all these uh, Fed governors uh, out or uh, regional Fed heads, uh, Bostic's out, and he says, um, uh, wait on inflation, it's not flashing red at this, wait, wait about talking on tapering, it's not flashing red. Um, then you had Sharker talk about uh, possibly, uh, you know, looking at the 120 billion a month of asset purchases, maybe, uh, you know, moving that down a bit. Kaplan out, say Kaplan was out today saying we need to talk about tapering sooner rather than later. I won't put a date on it. Bostic was out and saying we need much more substantial progress in the economy before we even talk about it. And Clarita was out saying, um, economy hasn't made the progress needed to scale back. So effectively, no one knows which way is up. All I can tell you is Powell's in charge. He's basically said, I'll let this thing run as hot as hell until every single person, white, black, Asian, that wants a job, has a job, and uh, we're, we're 16 million people away from that. So uh, he's going to keep his foot on the gas. I think that... Um, uh, I think that the jobs report, despite 22 states now canceling the extended unemployment benefits, you still got 28 states that have them. I think the jobs reports will continue to be as apparent as the last report was uh, with such a big miss because people are getting paid more to stay at home than to go back to work. I think we'll see a trend of that type of softness over the summer because for 28 states that are keeping the extended unemployment, it doesn't expire until September. So what that does is it continues to give the Fed cover and say, look, we've got all these people still without a job. It's, we're going to let it run hot. And then all these other guys will come out uh, and gals and, and uh, CYA uh, public talks and saying, yeah, we know what Powell said, but, 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 uh, but Powell's, Powell's in charge. And uh, I think that de delays the actual tapering from consensus was Q4. I think that gets pushed out to Q1. And that's when I think we start to see a little bit of turmoil in the markets in the middle of a longer term bull, <clears throat> but enough to shake out all the long money. Um, okay, so that's that. Thank you again to that group. Uh, also want to thank today Medicine and Caroline 
Valet Kevich, Valet Kevich for including me in their articles. There were two versions out on Reuters. I said the inflation fears are overblown and it's not as bad as the market has been pricing in. One indicator that we can see there are signs of moderation is in commodities started to show some weakness this week. We saw oil come in a little bit, lumber come in a little bit, some of the grains come in a little bit. So I think that's going to be a positive thing through the summer that's going to enable those groups that got their head handed to them in the last two months on overblown inflation fears to start to rally and what what groups are those i think those groups are um i think those groups are tech some uh, some areas of tech again not a wholesale call on tech uh and i think some of the yield sensitive um i, I think utilities could have a second leg staples uh pharma could get bid and that would be characteristic of this seasonality of the year uh, where the market kind of goes into the summer doldrums, the market gr you know grinds sideways, and then some of these groups uh, start start to get bid up that are less uh, tied to the economic cycle and more tied to uh, rates and the absence of inflation fears. So that was that. Uh, the other thing I noted was in this quote, institutional investors took a lot of money off the table due to inflation fears in Q1. They're now at $3.065 trillion of money markets. That's the highest since last May. I got that statistic from um, uh, Fundstrat, uh, Tom Lee's note, and that money could start flowing back into tech stocks as those fear, fears moderate. Tom's still bull uh, bearish on tech here. Uh, I think there are pockets that there there are oppor there is opportunity here uh, going into this part of the season. I do think that on a relative basis, cyclicals will outperform in the first eight quarters of the cycle. We're four quarters in, so I think for another year, year and a half, on balance, cyclicals will outperform. Uh, and we're seeing that this year, Russell value is up 17%. Russell growth is up 5%. I think in coming months, we're going to see that actually uh, that gap narrow a little bit, even though value will continue to outperform on, on the year. All right. Now, let's um, let's move to. Um, a couple of the ask me anything questions. First off from Al Padco. Hi, Tom. For your ask a question segment and feel free to edit the question. I'm not going to edit the question, but thanks for the uh, opportunity. Been following you for about a year now and really enjoy your weekly video and daily emails. We've exchanged comments on one of your seeking alpha pieces. Uh, last two weeks, you've mentioned Chinese stocks. Are you buying ADRs or buying them on the Hong Kong exchange? I started to nibble because the things you have discussed previously have made serious money for me. Oh, well, <laughs> glad to, glad to uh, do that, uh, to be helpful. Uh, he said, these stocks seem to be very undervalued, but this sector has lots of potential pitfalls beside the political and geopolitical concerns. One of them is the... Uh, VIE structure if buying ADRs. The other is the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act, which we've talked about actually in a number of these podcast video casts. Is this a short-term trade for you or do you see this as a longer-term investment in the way you view energy and financials? Regards, Al. Uh, Al, this is a great question. Thank you for that compliment, by the way. And want to just put a, a bookmark here. Uh, first off, Anything I do on this, which I always say is opinion, not investment advice. I'm just talking about what I'm doing personally, what I'm doing with my clients. Uh, for, unfortunately, most people 
can't invest with me because my minimum is $5 million and it's for accredited investors and qualified institutions only. Uh, so I try to give some good value for people who can't or people and, and, and also for people who are part of the trade service at hedgefundtips.com that can invest with me but like, like to get ideas. Um, so again, click on terms under hedgefundtips.com, opinion, not advice. Now, um, Al, uh, we are doing ADRs and I understand the foreign, uh, Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act. There was actually development on this in the last week that the Biden administration actually deferred their decision a couple of weeks as it relates to the three or four companies that were related to China, that had uh, Chinese military ties. So they had banned China Mobile, I think China Unicom, and um, one of the major chip makers. Uh, and now I believe they're taking the chip maker off of that list. And there has been no indication that they're going to add more names to that list. Now, anything can happen, but I think everyone kind of realized that once this new administration came in, they're going to be much more friendly to China. So far, we've seen that in spades. We've we've uh, gone from a position of standing behind Taiwan against China to ignoring Taiwan as it relates to China. We've gone uh, from a position of backing Israel in the Middle East to kind of letting it play out as it's going to play out. So it's a complete u-turn in uh, foreign relations and the uh, while that risk is still there of further delisting of those companies that are not necessarily certainly not chinese military related but you know chinese government related is pretty much every company uh, i know that the banks are pushing behind the scenes to uh avoid that direction and i think the administration is amenable to more China-friendly policy, which would um, assuage any concerns about uh, further delistings. Uh, my sense is <laughs> the minute you saw Navarro walking out of the White House with his box, this became a rear-view <laughs> rear mirror issue. Uh, although you can't say with 100% certainty, and it's right to acknowledge that, you could buy in Hong Kong, then you have currency issues, uh, uh, which is perfectly fine. Uh, um, that's number one. Number two, is it a short-term trade or is it a longer-term secular like energy and financials? This is shorter term. So my kind of view here is maybe six to nine to 12 months. Uh, maybe sooner than that if we get lucky, but more likely six to nine months, end of the year into the first half of next year. And potentially that new decision in early June that was pushed off from late May regarding those uh, less than handful of stocks that have already been banned <coughs> and delisted will give us some color and could be a, a catalyst for the entire group to start to rally. Now, you saw some heavy trading on China midweek and uh, a little bit this afternoon, and they coincided explicitly with the crypto crash the crypto crash today was correlated with china cracking down on bitcoin miners using up all the energy and um you know obviously they don't like crypto to start with because they're trying to do the chinese yuan digital yuan rather 
and uh, that's competition. So you could see continued pressure. And every time the Chinese government interferes with um, cryptocurrency, people will get nervous that they're going to do more interference with the tech stocks. But that's known, and that's kind of priced in at these for for the most part with with most of these stocks down 30 to 70 percent, and nothing's materially changed in their fundamentals. And we're going to look at a couple of the earnings in a second, despite the fines and the oversight and all of that. And with them wanting to move into an internal consumption economy uh, and spur consumer spending, I just don't see them taking Alibaba out to the woodshed after the $2.8 billion fine, taking them out to the woodshed and shooting them in the head because they kill themselves. You know, their, their whole strategy over the next five years is aligned with internal consumption or what they call uh, dual something or other, but, uh, you know, obviously exports. But but they want, they want to get that and insulate themselves in case... Um, uh, foreign governments start to uh, ally together to put pressure on them. They want that internal consumption. And the biggest beneficiary of that internal consumption is going to be Alibaba and their platforms and some of the others, JD and uh, Tencent, etc. Uh, so I still like them. At, and, and the other thing is, look, it's Chinese stocks. We're not uh, um, spring chickens here. You got to buy a basket. You can't analyze a company like we did last year, Wells Fargo, and put 20% of your portfolio in it and sleep well at night. Um, you need a, you know, that was the biggest percentage weight that we ever did in low and uh, low to, I think our weighted cost was like $25. Um, you can't do that in China. You need a basket because you got to assume out of, you know, six to 10 names that are down 50 plus percent, one of them or two of them are going to wind up being a fraud. I mean, that's just you know, that's just history. That's going to happen. Or there's going to be some short seller come out with a report. And when someone comes out with a report on a Chinese company, it's shoot first, ask questions later. And whether they prove to be a fraud later, like Lutkin or not, it doesn't matter. The stock's down another 30%. So you need a basket to win. Um, and some people have asked me about ETFs. I don't like the ETFs as much because they're not down quite a lot. Um, but Asher, A-Shares is one that Soros bought in his basket of Baidu, VIP shops, ten, uh, Tencent Music Entertainment, and uh, ASHR is the uh, ETF he bought. I think he bought another a number of other China stocks as well after Q1, um, which we've referenced in past um weekly articles and notes but that's how i'm thinking of a basket of adrs some with options some just straight stock and uh, take a intermediate term view six to nine months out maybe 12 months they could go against us a little bit in the short term uh but uh i think that's going to be a great trade for the second half of the year maybe the trade of the year we'll 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 see okay <clears throat> the next so thanks al for that question the next one, two, three, four, five questions can't come from the same person. So uh, thanks to Ben Be Healthy is his name. Uh, appreciate everyone listening in. And his first question is, how much geopolitical risk is there regarding sanctions, stock exchange delistings regarding BABA, A-share, et cetera? Uh, we just went over that. So that, that's an easy one. Good question. Uh, okay, another podcast question. What are your latest thoughts on DFEN? Okay to add at 20. If not, what's a good pullback price to wait for? Thanks, Ben. Uh, so this is part of the group that we were pushing like crazy last year. It's up quite a bit. Uh, we, again, prefer individual names. Um, 
versus ETFs, but you know something like DFEN. I mean, first off, this is a triple leveraged ETF, so you know these things are going to bounce around. So look, what's that? Twenty-two dollars. If you bought it now, the thing could go down to fifteen dollars before going up to fifty. But who cares? I mean, uh, is my view. But uh, if you can't take that type of volatility. I'd probably be more inclined to buy Boeing here, personally. Uh, most of the other names that we talked about last year are up huge. We'll, we'll take a look at the, a number of the charts. But if you wanna buy this, uh, who cares if it's 20 or $21? If, if, if over time it's gonna work its way up to 40 or 50, or maybe beyond 70 in the next three to five years, if it goes 25 or 30% against you, it's not the end of the, not the, end of the world. Uh, for safety, buy the individual names. The one that's still buyable at these levels with new money is uh, Boeing, in my opinion. Um, but we still own a number of um, uh, of uh, defense and aerospace. We like the sector going forward. Again, that's the longer term, like um, energy and financials. Next question from Ben Be Healthy. Uh, hi, Tom. What are your thoughts on XLF short term? I know you love it long term. Short term, I think it's going to cool. Honestly, over the summer, um, you know, this would be a spot you can lighten up a little bit and add back later, or you can just hold it. I mean, the, the time to sell financials is going to be during the next yield curve inversion. And then once you get the two to 10 inversion, and credits choked off, you probably still have another six to 18 months historically where they still go up even after that. But for safety, next time it inverts. So my guess is, you know, your Wells Fargo's are gonna be 70 or $80 stocks at that point. Maybe even, maybe it'll hit the century mark, I don't know. Um, your uh, Bank of America's could be $70 stocks. Your cities will be 100 plus dollar stocks. So, uh, so there's a lot of room. But in the short term, could we get a 20% pullback? Because now all the late money that was making fun of the trade last year is now buying the breakout. Uh, yeah, because this is the time that the market tends to smoke those people that are late monies and are all exuberant after the 100% or 150% of the move has already been made. So uh, short term, I'm cautious. Could it keep pressing higher? Yes. And would I be happy with that? Yes. But do I expect, uh, expect it to move against us a little bit over the next few months? Yes. Um, so also, you said on last week's podcast, that uh, market makers sold tons of protection on Monday through Wednesday last week, which will expire worthless. Thus, should we expect the markets to be up this Thursday and Friday since Friday's options expiration date? It may too, be too late to answer the second question for the podcast. Okay, number one is I would never make any assertion about what's going to happen in a week. That is a formula. This is, this is an example of what I was talking about on the CNN piece is with new people trying to make too much money too quickly. If you're trading on a basis of a week, it means you're buying weekly options. Like, you know, honestly, the products made for weekly, weekly options are made for retail suckers. So anytime you're buying a weekly option, just assume that someone smarter than you is taking your money. Because um, while there will be instances where you'll make five and 10X on penny options, uh, when all is said and done, you stayed for too many free drinks at the casino and you're going to walk out of the casino with your mortgage payment left with the dealer. That's how it works. So, you know, I think, um, you know, we've seen a number of these type of questions, uh, short term questions before 
wrong podcast for this. Anyone that tells you they have an edge over the next five days, uh, you know, they're probably not going to be around a year from now. So um, what I did say was that the skew, the option skew index, um, let's just see if I can pull this up. Yeah, okay. So was elevated and they're selling a lot of out of the money premium insurance premium that was very very expensive because there was huge amounts of demand for it the out the money implied volatility was low uh and the out of the money was in huge demand betting on one and two standard deviation moves that doesn't mean for weekly options no institutions buying insurance a week out unless they're morons so they were probably buying a couple to you know one two three months out uh, uh, S&P 500 puts uh, one or two standard deviations out betting on a catastrophe that never came. And and if you recall, and you can go back to the articles, I said that we'll probably get a move against you, but just enough uh, that it doesn't pay out because one or two standard deviation move is probably closer to 10 plus percent. Uh, and which is which which means you're more likely to get, you know, three to five percent in the S&P. So no one gets paid. The, the sellers of the premium make all the money and the buyers of the premium that bought after the storm started make nothing. And that's exactly what's happened so far. Does that mean it can't change? No, it could certainly change. But for now, it's playing out as anticipated. Uh, and uh, please, for your sake, do not trade on what's going to happen in the next five days you're guaranteed to blow up now that's part of the tuition process maybe you have to blow up an account or two before you learn your lesson and i'm not i'm speaking generally to new people and that's that's okay you know physicians have to pay 150 200 000 of, of student loans to get their education you know um but my suggestion is um Take your time horizon out a little bit longer. You'll do a lot better in the long term. And don't be in such a rush. Learn. And, and by the way, that's what you're doing by listening to this. So, you know, huge applause. But I know you've asked a number of short-term questions in the past. And I'm just telling you it's going to hurt you more than help you. Even if I know the answer, which in some cases I, I do or I think I do, it's it's not helpful to, to talk about that short-term time frame. Because if you just look out a little bit longer, you're going to make a lot more money and uh, have a lot more certainty in your results. Next question. At what price do you like adding Bo uh, Alibaba shares? Here, right here. I love adding Alibaba here. I love adding Baba lower. Uh, I love adding Baba if it starts to go back up. I don't know where it's going to bottom. It could bottom 10% lower from here, but I think 9 to 12 to 18 months out, it's going to make new highs. So what's that, a you know, 40, 50% move? Uh, I could care less if it goes against me in the short term. So, yeah, I'm adding here, and, uh, and I'll continue to do so, uh, even with new capital at these prices. Um, again, that's opinion, not advice. Next question, same, same questioner. Uh, here's my most important podcast question for the evening. It seems like you think the COVID vaccines will work and make things great. Maybe you're 100% correct. But what if, for whatever reasons, variants, vaccine complications, or something else, there are ex excess or excessive deaths in coming months? Of course, <clears throat> I hope this doesn't occur. But what stocks would help hedge one's portfolio against this? Specific sectors, healthcare stocks, what else? What do you think about TDOC down 50% from this Friday? 
Okay. Um, I think this is the right question. Uh, you can never be too certain about your thesis and the minute you do, you're dead. So I like that you're asking this type of question, Ben. Um, so the types of stocks that would hedge us from this, um, well, first off, if the world is coming to an end, you generally want to buy long-term treasury bonds. But uh, let's assume that's not the case. Let's just assume you get variants or, you know, uh, the vaccine doesn't, or it could be a geopolitical event, just some black swan that no one's looking for. Um, the stocks that I put out at the end of February um, and the first week of March that have done well, now have taken a rest the last few weeks, I think are going to take another leg higher, will benefit in that type of environment. And that's namely utilities, staples, and healthcare. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about those today. But those are your defensive groups, utility staples, and healthcare that are going to do well either in a sideways chop or in the scenario that you're laying out. Now, you also ask a great question about TDOC. Uh, so I pulled up the chart here. Now, the problem with these high multiple no earning stocks is that everyone loved them 100% higher. Now, no one wants them at 50% off. However, when you look at Teladoc, it's 50% off, but basically what's happened is it's gone from 20 times sales to 10 times sales, and it still has no earnings. So what's the story here? I mean, it was... It, run, it ran up huge on Teladoc is, you know, getting your physician services over the phone or over the internet uh, without going into the office. I think a lot of people are going to go to the office uh, to catch up, number one. Number two, the perception of that trade, like the Zooms, is, is in the rearview mirror. So I think they have to come to a new equilibrium, a new multiple that's not assuming unlimited growth and is not assuming future um, quarantines. And I don't know what that equilibrium is. So on Teladoc, I have zero edge to know if 10 times sales is the right multiple, 20 times sales is the right multiple, or one time sales is the right multiple. I really have no way of telling because there's no earnings and I don't know if the growth is going to come in line with expectations. Um, but, you know, all I would do on something, so so I would just take a pass. You could be right, because I do think there are a lot of stocks that are cut in half in the last couple of months that will bounce once these inflation fields subside. So I like your line of thinking. Uh, you know, they just broke through. You know, I'm looking right here at this chart at buyer's uh, volume by price. And I don't see any real support here until $82. So it's at 140 now. You know, I could wake up in three months and this thing could be back at 100 and that wouldn't surprise me. I could also wake up in three months and see it down at $80, which perfectly wouldn't surprise me. I'd probably start to be a buyer at $80. I'd have to take another look and see if the, the projections are still the same. But this is where I think there would be a lot of institutional defense. There's a lot of activity here. Um, there just doesn't seem to be like, what's the reason for anyone to step up here? There's, there's no real ownership. It's, it's broken below all support. So I, I don't make trades on technicals and that's all this would be, uh, exclusively on technicals. That's for damn sure. Um, so I, I don't have an edge here, so I would just personally take a pass. I'm agnostic and, uh, but I, I would definitely take a hard look at in the eighties. Uh, but I may never get to take that look and I'm perfectly okay if it 
turns around and makes new highs without me. So um, I don't have a good answer for you, but it's a good question. Okay, um, so this was, by the way, this is what I was talking about. Bets are soaring that oil hits $100 by December. So now they've got everyone back in the boat. My guess is uh, this is the exact time where that premium gets burned uh, and um, we get the Iran deal uh, and oil, you know, comes in five or 10 bucks. Everyone starts puking out. And, um, you know, if we've got some new cash available, we'll be, we'll be buyers. But um, I... I, I you know, we're going to look at the energy stocks and you're going to look at a bunch of them that, that still look really cheap right now. So maybe these bets on $100 Brent by December are correct. I doubt it. I know that has to happen to accelerate the transition to electric, but I don't know if it's going to happen that quickly. So um, uh, I think short, short-term caution, intermediate term, it's going to be an awesome run three, you know, for the next handful of years. Okay, the stock market is a device for transferring money from the impatient to patient. So I guess that's speaking to the short-term question here. I think if you just take a longer-term outlook, uh, you'll you'll be amply rewarded. But these were just phenomenal questions, and I want to acknowledge both Al and Ben because I can just tell that they've been really paying attention for the last you know months and, and year plus, and uh, and in the case of Al, making a ton of money from it. So kudos to you. The other aspect I want to point out is nothing I'm saying here is meant to be like, you know, s- smart or, or someone smarter or any any of that. All it has to do with is experience and uh, learning through experience. And sometimes all there is to that is time. You can cut your learning curve by learning from someone who's experienced, but most of the people who are experienced and know what they're doing aren't willing to share what they know. So that's, you know, that's the other catch 22. I do this uh, part for self-interest and part to give back. The self-interest is going on TV and, you know, getting quotes in articles and doing this weekly podcast takes a tremendous amount of ongoing rigor and preparation. And what happens is the returns for my clients and for my personal have been through the roof because of it. So doing this type of work benefits everyone, but it specifically benefits my clients and me because our performance is off the charts because of the rigor I have to go through on a daily and weekly basis to put this amount of content out and being on top of every single thing that's happening at all points in time, which just has translated into outstanding outcomes. So um, the point of this quote with Charlie Munger it says a lot of people with high IQs are terrible investors because they've got terrible temperaments. So that question about Baba, you know, what, you know, and DFEN, what, you know, would you wait for another dollar to buy? I, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a buyer of Baba here. If it goes another 10 or 20% against me, I'm a buyer of more. You know, it was the same thing with Wells Fargo. Um, you know, we started buying some in the high 20s. It went down to the low 20s. Our average basis was, you know, 25 or a little bit below 25. Now it's at 46, 47. So, and now, now everyone wants it and, and hedge, funds are, hedge funds are starting to buy it, et cetera. So it's just, it, it's not about being smart. It's just going through the experience, being open-minded to continually learn. I'm learning on a daily basis and getting better on a daily basis. And, um, so, so I invite you to do that. And, you know, if you get a trade wrong, it doesn't mean you're not smart. You, you may have a much higher IQ than some of the best performers in the market. It's, it's a temperament game. And oftentimes the best business people are the worst investors because they, 
you know, a lot of success in business is just sheer will and grit. So you force through and you're stubborn and you keep going until you make it happen. And if you do that with a trade, you're toast. You, know, you blow up a portfolio by not being flexible in your thinking. So, um, so I would just, you know, go easy on yourselves is what I'm trying to say. It's a process and uh, try to have some fun with it. Um, try to manage your risk. And, you know, as you go through time, you'll become great at it. There's no question about it. So, uh, okay. So speaking to the trade of the year, George, this was the headline this week. George Soros buys stocks linked to Bill Huang's Archegos collapse. Um, one man's trash is another man's treasure, I guess. I love these forced liquidation situations. So they listed that. And, uh, and we're in the same exact trade, maybe a few different names. And then you saw earnings from Chinese companies across the board, JD beat both on the top and the bottom line, Baidu beat on the, on the top and the bottom line, um, Tencent beat on the top and the bottom line in spite the Chinese government crackdown, which is known and already largely, uh, we hope mostly priced in, which we believe it is. So, and then Gavacal, which is one of the best Chinese analysts uh, out there uh, for the last couple of decades, um, says, don't bet against China's investment-led growth model. So people have voiced concern that their growth is slowing relative to the U.S. in the short term. That's because their recovery was much faster than ours. We've talked about that for the last year and a half, that they were three months ahead of us. It's the exact same story. But moving forward, as our growth normalizes, they're still going to grow at about two times in the short term. I think in the long term, they are going to face demographic headwinds. And why I, when I talk long term, I think they could have more of a Japanese situation four or five years out than people are anticipating. Most people are betting that they become uh, the new economic hegemonic power globally. I think that's unlikely because I think our demographics are more favorable. And while in the short term it will look neck and neck, I think in the intermediate term uh, we're going to pull uh, well well ahead because we never had the one child um, mandate and that's uh, really turned them into an aging population that that could uh, impair them the way the same way it did to Japan uh, post 1989. Okay, now this is interesting because now we've been talking the last week or two about uh, buying some of these not wholesale tech but some pockets of tech that have been sliced in half, which Ben alluded to in one of his questions. Biggest shorting of tech stocks by hedge fund in five years. So this is the kind of headline you want to see when you're going to get an inflection, like in 18. Um, and um, I'm, I'm sorry. This, okay, so this is, uh, this is late. No, so, so actually, this is more interesting. They're showing the biggest short flow uh, has happened in the last two weeks. So after half of these names are down 50%, the hedge funds have now jumped in and gone short, which is explicitly why um, hedge funds had another dismal quarter. <laughs> Goldman explains why. So first, they were in their hedge fund hotel stocks, which you can see the highest weight, 50 stocks that most frequently appear among the 10 uh, the largest holdings of hedge funds. This was for Q1. So what were they overweight in? They were overweight in tech. What got taken out behind the woodshed and shot in the head? Tech. So now that they've gotten smoked and underperformed in Q1, what are they doing? They're shorting in the hole is is the, you know, what this phrase we use for amateurs that short things that are already down. And they're going to get smoked again because uh, we're coming into a period of seasonal strength 
for technology. If you look here, this is the average of the last 20 years by equityclock.com. Sideways for the first half, straight up for the second half. I think this year is going to prove to be in line with that um, tendency. Now, um, so I like this. I like when they're extremely long oil because that tells me oil is probably ready to take a break, probably right after Memorial Day. You know, prices always ramp into that and then they fade. Uh, and then you look here at some of the um, SaaS stocks starting to get upgraded. Salesforce got an upgraded by Morgan Stanley this week. That's been, you know, that, that stock has uh, uh, been struggling. I think some of these type of stocks could start to get bid. Same thing from Bank of America upgraded them. And here's where we put out last week the 10 indicators uh, of the NASDAQ where we're saying this is pointing to much closer to a buy than to a sell. Um, and here were the indicators that we put out. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And they were all near the bottom versus the top. Did that mean that you had to get an immediate turnaround? No, but we actually did. So the timing was pretty good. And this is what you see. Then we retested this week and now we closed positive. By the way, the NASDAQ actually closed positive this week. So that's pretty damn impressive. And <clears throat> uh, so, so that's where we are. So this is where they were all long, the hedge fund hotel in Q, Q1. And now as we they're all blown up, now they're all shorting in the hole. And now we probably get some, some strength as the inflation fears are overblown. Blown. You're also seeing some buying coming in. The reason I picked this one, uh, this is Open Door Technologies. Uh, this is one of those SPACs that, you know, I've been talking about warrants on busted SPACs. Well, this is not only, this is this is all three things. This is a uh, tech stock, uh, market hates it. This is a SPAC, market hates it. And this is an IPO, basically, market hates it. So these are the three bubbles. They've rolled over. The stock got up to, you know, $39.00. You know, I, I, it was a SPAC at $10, shot up to $40. Now it shot down to $13. It's trading about $14. Well, guess what? Um, this guy came in, one of the directors, he bought a million dollars of stock two days ago. So that's kind of interesting. I see that type of stuff and I get interested. $998,000 of stock, 67,000 shares. Puo Kufer is his name. He's a director. And, um, you know, am I saying that that's that's the one, you know, do do what you want. But I will say that I'm seeing a little bit more of this. I'm seeing also we saw in the options market today, someone came in with some uh, Baba calls, uh, Alibaba calls. Uh, I think it was November, or December, $200 strike. That's a smart trade in the money. Um So that's that. Here's the note on 22 states dropping the $300 weekly unemployment boost amid mounting job shortage. So that will help those jobs report and maybe uh, push the Fed toward tapering sooner than later. But with 28 still holding strong till September, I think we're going to continue to see below estimates, you know, on balance through September, which pushes that taper action off into Q1 instead of Q4. Okay, uh, moving right along, we are at... Uh, the May Bank of America Global Fund Manager survey results. Um, 
we've gone from everyone believing this was late stage bull to now everyone starting to move over to thinking it's early stage early stage bull which we've said since april of last year and um these are some things uh the consensus is now expecting higher growth and higher inflation so i you know i would be you know this last spike big spike was in 2011 and that's when you had the twist talk and yields compressed pretty quickly so that's why you know some of these overzealousness coming into what we were pounding our table on last year that's up 100 150% energy and financial stocks etc um with everyone looking for this i think in the short term they take a breather and with everyone shorting tech in the hole i'm inclined to say there's going to be opportunity there over the next few months and with no one wanting to touch china because of the fear over this uh, china delistings which i think are contained to those handful of names and may get a catalyst in a few weeks that uh, there will be no further delistings, de um, that could be an opportunity, which is kind of tied into tech. If you notice, China was a little heavy today after the um, Chinese government cracked down on the miners because it's just you know reminder of that it's a communist government and they can do whatever they want. Uh, but if they were to really impair Alibaba and Ant Financial, Ant is going to be critical for their entire Chinese Yuan rollout. So if they want to do that, they basically are trying to shoot themselves in the head and no one in their right mind does that. So my bet is that they have already inflicted the two and a half, $2.8 billion fine. That's the end of the story. Alibaba goes and plays golf. He doesn't show up on, not Alibaba, what's his name? Um, Jack Ma goes and plays golf. He doesn't do any interviews. You never, never, you never see him on TV ever again. Uh, he gets a you know scratch handicap, and all is well. And Baba goes back to new highs in the next 12 to 24 months. Um, okay, some other key takeaways from this: investors think uh, uh, S&P will outperform in 2021. So now here's what they all think is going to do the best. Uh, they've all moved now. Now everyone thinks the S&P is going to do great. Oil is going to do great. Emerging markets are going to do great. So this is a complete change from six months ago, which is, um, you know, why you're seeing these huge bets on oil, which makes me pause in the short term, love it in the intermediate term. But um, when late money gets that crowded, they are often taken out behind the barn and uh, you know what happens next. All right. Um, Fed hike expectations pulled forward to 2022. So now they're thinking, you know, um, Powell had said 2023. That's where everyone was last report in May, in April, rather. Now it's the opposite. They think it's going to be in 2022. I don't see him raising rates uh at least till the back half of 2022 and maybe even 2023. He will taper before then, but I, I think that's a, that's a 2022 story. Uh, what else do we see here? Uh, oh, bets on the um, infrastructure package. Uh, they're working on that. Now, people have viewed these three charts, profit expectations, investors expecting a stronger economy and level of risk you're taking in the current environment all are at at or near all-time highs which looks like complete euphoria however if you 
dispassionately step back and look at the this data, all the times that they hit these euphoric levels were not at the end of old cycles. They were coming down into the end of old cycles, coming down. It's right at the beginning of a new cycle, right at the beginning of a new cycle, right at the beginning of a new cycle. So you saw this type of euphoria in 2003 and 2009. Um, so... This is normal. Now, it was also normal in 2010 to get a 10 to 20% correction uh, to knock out some of this exuberance. And I do see us getting that uh, more likely in 2022 than 2021. And I think it's going to line up with the, with the first tapering in the first quarter or the first half of next year versus this year. This year, as we said in the beginning of the year, was going to be, I think, a 2013 or 2017 type model after a huge massive dislocation like you had in 2011 uh, and you had in um, 2016 just as we had last year in 2020, the year after no one believes it, everyone's looking in the rear view mirror waiting for the next shoe to drop and that's why it keeps pushing higher and not letting anyone in. What does that look like? No corrections greater than three to 5% in the S&P 500. So far that's been the, the case. We've had, I think three, we expected a handful for the year. Uh, we're not, ex and we expected a mid-teens up, upside year. So we're not expecting more mir you know, real miracles in the general indices through the year end. We should get some more upside. But the real money, the big money is going to be made in the rallies under the surface. And we're going to talk a little more about that. This is going to actually be a long call. We've got a lot of good stuff to share with you. So for those of you who are on the podcast, we're at minute 57. You're going to get cut off in three minutes. You can go to hedgefundtips.com, click on the video cast, and fast forward the YouTube video to minute number 60. And you will pick up exactly where you left off to get the last 10 or 15 minutes, which is going to be filled with charts of a lot of different sectors and stocks. There's just so much to cover this week, <laughs> despite nothing really happening in the market. Uh, there's a lot to be getting yourself prepared for. Um, the other thing that I loved about this Bank of America fund manager survey was this Z-score on tech, uh, meaning the allocation uh, dropping to the same magnitude it did in two times that preceded tech rallies. And we'll look at that in the article of the week a little bit more. You're also seeing all-time high in boom expectations. Look at what the biggest positioning uh, versus history in the Z-score. Commodities have had the biggest change. Everyone's now bullish on the pound. Uh, banks. I mean, these were the things you couldn't give away six months ago that we were pounding the table on. Now they want UK stocks. What are they getting out of? They're getting out of bonds. They're getting out of tech. They're getting out of utilities. Uh, and Staples has, has been light as well. I think that's going to be where the money could be made over the next few months, but we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more. The other thing is month-on-month -month percentage change in investor positioning. So big move into energy. There was a move into staples. So there is some, some level of people getting a little defensive, which is interesting. Uh, they've also had that monster run from uh, early March to um, the first eight weeks. Then they've cooled off for the last, last four weeks after all this hot money came in. I do think they could take another move higher in selective cases, and we'll talk about that. Where have they gotten out of? Emerging markets uh, and tech. So we'll keep that. Most crowded trade has now moved to long Bitcoin, which is kind of interesting. Now we've got this, whatever it was, 30 some odd percent crash. Uh, well, no, it crashed from, uh, what was it, 60? Did it get to 68? I have no idea. I don't watch Bitcoin every day. But 
you know, whatever it was in the 60s down to, I think it hit 30 midweek and then it got to the high 30s or mid 30, I think it's at 35 right now. <clears throat> so about a 50% correction right after everyone crowded the boat, um, which again, they always take care of the late money. That's that's how it works. And um, okay, so long tech, long Bitcoin is the most crowded trade. Um, people have really come down. They thought that tech was crowded last month. Now they don't think it's crowded uh, and they're all shorting in the whole 